Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, November 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Fallen crypto tycoon Sam Bankman-Fried is found guilty of fraud. The U.S. Senate bypasses a block on military promotions. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits Israel. South Korea reportedly lines up loans to finance a $22 billion arms sale to Poland. Russia ramps up its drone attacks in Ukraine. New Zealand's final election results are released. The FBI raids the home of the New York City mayor's top campaign fundraiser. The UK's AI summit sees big tech agree to government vetting of their AI products. Elon Musk's AI startup prepares to launch its first product. And Storm Kieran causes deadly flooding in Italy. In our top story, Sam Bankman-Fried convicted of FTX fraud. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, BBC News, and CNBC. After a month-long trial, the founder of bankrupt crypto exchange FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, was found guilty of seven counts of fraud and money laundering on Thursday. Bankman-Fried, who maintains his innocence, was charged last year over allegations that he stole money from his customers at the FTX exchange to support his company, Alameda Research. Adding to the former crypto tycoon's legal woes, prosecutors are seeking a second court case to address allegations of campaign finance infractions, bribery, and bank fraud. A trial that had been scheduled for March 11th, though prosecutors have yet to confirm whether they plan to move ahead. Bankman-Fried, who could face over 100 years in prison, is scheduled to be sentenced on March 28th. Meanwhile, three witnesses in the trial, former Alameda Research CEO Caroline Ellison, former FTX co-founder Gary Wang, and an engineer at the bankrupt crypto exchange, pleaded guilty to fraud at the end of 2022 and early 2023. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out the facts for us, and now our first spin, Narrative A, comes from Vox. FTX was seen as one of the more reputable firms in the crypto world, and its founder was considered a Capitol Hill darling, having donated millions to political campaigns and helped write legislation around cryptocurrencies. This predictable end to this shocking story, which will have ripple effects across the cryptosphere, will likely be the nail in the coffin for the industry. Narrative B comes from Marketplace. Despite the myriad of problems exposed by the FTX fiasco, cryptocurrency can't be counted out as a viable long-term investment. While it will take work to rebuild trust in the industry, it can be done with the help of oversight, as this case has renewed calls for more regulation of this, quote, Wild West financial space. I wonder if there was any point during this fiasco uh, where... He wanted to kind of get out of it, tried to find a way out, but realized he was just in too deep and then said, you know what? I'm just going to keep spending like crazy. Like, I wonder at what point he knew that it was over. We're going to find out when he writes that book in prison. You know what? The problem is he probably will, and he probably will make a bunch of money from it. But I mean, I guess if you right. owe, uh, it, it'd have to be a pretty good book to get out from under his, uh, his situation. Yeah. The Senate approves military promotions despite Tuberville's blockade. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, The Washington Post, Newsmax, ABC News, The Washington Examiner, and The New York Times. On Thursday, the Senate approved President Biden's nominees, Admiral Lisa Franchetti and General David Alvin, by a 95-to-1 vote as leaders of the Navy and Air Force, respectively. 
Additionally, the Senate voted 86 to 0 to confirm Lieutenant General Christopher Mahoney as the Marine Corps' number two officer. These confirmations were voted on individually so as to bypass Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican of Alabama's, hold on senior military promotions, which has been ongoing due to his objection to a Department of Defense policy for service women seeking abortions. Tuberville has partially blocked military promotions since Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin implemented a policy to reimburse military personnel traveling out of state to access reproductive health care needs following the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Vowing not to retreat on his position, Tuberville asserted that he couldn't watch passively while the Biden administration allegedly attempted to politicize the military, spend taxpayer dollars on abortions, and blatantly violate the Constitution. Senate Republicans, who largely oppose the policy but argue that the ongoing blockade punishes uniformed officers and their families, had sought to break the stalemate on the floor on Wednesday, but Tuberville refused to bend the rules for people who want to break the rules. Meanwhile, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer disclosed plans to temporarily circumvent Senate rules to restore what had been routine practice before Tuberville's nine-month hold. However, he would need the support of at least nine GOP senators to clear the 60-vote threshold and advance the proposal. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. Our first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from American Spectator. Tuberville has boldly exposed the hypocrisy of the American political establishment, which has rightfully condemned the appalling murder of infants in Israel but unjustly supported the illegal use of taxpayer funds to get rid of unwanted pregnancies. Now, both sides of the aisle have come together to blame him for stalling military nominations when all he is doing is being a righteous citizen seeking to ensure compliance with federal laws. And Fox News brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Whether or not you agree with Pentagon policy that covers travel costs for abortions for service members and their dependents, it's a matter of fact that Tuberville's hold on military nominations has unreasonably used troops and their families as political pawns while undermining national security. Republicans and Democrats mustn't allow a single senator to punish the armed forces whenever they have a policy disagreement. Our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community offering their narrative, they call it the nerd narrative, they say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before 2030. Netanyahu rules out a temporary ceasefire as the IDF surrounds Gaza City. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, ABC News, CNN, BBC News, Fars News Agency, and Al Jazeera. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a brief televised statement before the start of Shabbat that he has told the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken that there will be no temporary ceasefire in Gaza until Hamas releases all hostages. Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv on Friday to push for short pauses in the fighting in specific areas to allow aid deliveries and other humanitarian activities amid threats of a wider war and mounting civilian casualties. On his fourth visit to Israel since the October attack, the top U.S. diplomat also met President Isaac Herzog and the War Cabinet before declaring that more has to be done to protect Palestinian civilians, suggesting that U.S. support for its ally isn't without limits. This comes as the Israel Defense Forces claim to have, quote, completed the encirclement of Gaza City, attacking outposts, headquarters, and other alleged Hamas infrastructures. It's unclear how many civilians are currently in the city located in the north of the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, Hamas's military wing Al-Qassam brigades reportedly warned that continued ground operations in Gaza would be a, quote, curse of history for Israel and have catastrophic consequences. 
threatening to send Israeli troops back home, quote, in black bags. In addition, the UN condemned on Thursday Israeli air attacks on the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp in northern Gaza, which Tel Aviv claims targeted a Hamas commander, arguing that such actions could amount to a war crime. All right, thanks, Eric. The Jerusalem Post brings us the pro-Israel narrative. Though sympathy for Palestinian civilians is understandable since they are, to some extent, victims of their abhorrent leadership, an immediate ceasefire would be neither reasonable nor right. Israel will continue to avoid civilian casualties in Gaza as much as tactically possible, but Tel Aviv must show strength so as to neutralize terrorists from Hamas and prevent further attacks from other Iranian proxies. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Al Jazeera. By urging for a so-called humanitarian pause instead of calling for a complete cessation of hostilities, the U.S. is intentionally aggravating the suffering of Gaza's civilian population. Rather than taking concrete steps to avoid an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, Blinken is engaged in inconsequential talks in Tel Aviv at a time when Israel has clearly stated that a ceasefire wasn't an option. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will give at least $3.12 billion in aid to Israel in 2030. South Korea lines up banks for a $22 billion arms sale to Poland. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BOL News, Market Screener, and Business Live. After hitting its statutory limits on import-export lending, South Korea is working to line up local banks to help Poland buy $22 billion worth of weapons, as reported by Reuters. According to an anonymous South Korean government official, five local banks are reviewing a syndicated loan as a support measure to help Poland buy South Korean rocket artillery systems and fighter jets. The move aims to help remove any possible financial obstacles for Poland to purchase the weapons, allowing South Korea to close what will be its most sizable arms deal ever. The official did not provide more details about the size of the potential loan. Another anonymous official said that if Poland could not get enough loans for the proposed sale, there could be other financing measures on the way. The proposed deal is a follow-up to the comprehensive arms agreement signed between South Korea and Poland last year. Under that $13.7 billion deal, which is Seoul's largest to date, South Korean companies will provide tanks, howitzers, and fighter jets to Poland. The 2022 arms agreement with Poland helped establish South Korea as a major player in global weapons exports, which is a field largely dominated by the U.S. and Russia. The war in Ukraine helped to pave the way for Seoul's weapons exports, with the country's defense exports totaling nearly $17 billion in 2022, up from just $7.25 billion the previous year. Scott, thank you for those facts. The first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from Nikkei Asia. South Korea is trying to profit off of war and global conflict. Despite the fact that South Korean law prohibits defense companies from selling their weapons directly to countries engaged in conflict, officials have their eye not only on the war in Ukraine, but also on the developing war in Gaza. Seoul's loopholes of providing weapons to countries geographically close to Ukraine, like Poland, or refilling depleted U.S. weapons stockpiles, allowing more Americans' weapons to be sent directly to Ukraine and Israel, are insincere workarounds. 
And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Reuters. Many countries around the world, like the U.S., are overextended with their foreign defense obligations. Countries are depleting their weapons stockpiles by arming Ukraine in its war against Russia, and this scarcity of weapons is not something they can easily or quickly solve on their own. South Korean defense companies can help fill this void. There is a need in this market that South Korea is more than equipped to fill. Dave Ramsey would definitely frown on this uh, transaction. He would say, you know, never, never borrow to, uh, he's never said this in particular, but I imagine his opinion on this would be never borrow to buy uh, national defense weapons from another country. I think, I believe you're In fact, I think that was one of the bylines in his uh, Financial Peace University on one of the last chapters. <laughs> it's one of the baby steps. $1,000 emergency fund, and then you got to not borrow for right. national defense. That's Those That's are the baby right. steps. <laughs> Russia ramps up drone attacks in Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, TASS, and DW. Ukrainian authorities said Friday that Russia launched a wave of nighttime drone and missile attacks across 10 of Ukraine's 24 regions, adding that Moscow had expanded the number of drones it uses in its routine overnight attacks as winter approaches. Kyiv's Air Force said it intercepted 24 of Russia's 38 Shahid drones as well as one KH-59 cruise missile. Meanwhile, the Russian Defense Ministry said it unloaded, quote, 15 multiple launch precision bi-weapons and unmanned aerial vehicles, targeting Ukrainian missile and artillery armament depots, armament and military hardware storage facilities, and temporary deployment sites of Ukrainian troops, nationalists, and foreign mercenaries. It said it wiped out production sites of UAVs, naval drones, and groups of foreign instructors and mercenary soldiers. The Russian ministry reported that over the past week, it had eliminated over 755 Ukrainian troops and 15 armored vehicles in the Kupiansk area, 17 motor vehicles, 16 field artillery guns, and two multiple rocket launchers. It also eliminated 920 enemy troops and another 1340 in the Krasny, Laman, and Donetsk areas, respectively. As Russia ramps up its aerial attacks, Moscow on Thursday dismissed a new sanctions package imposed on it by the U.S. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that while the sanctions create additional problems, they have adapted to them and learned how to overcome them. Both Russian and Ukrainian militaries are reportedly building up their munition stockpiles ahead of the new year, with both sides struggling to make progress along the 1,500-kilometer or 930-mile front line. As Kyiv is set to receive F-16 fighter jets from its Western allies, Russia is purchasing weapons from North Korea, Iran, and Belarus. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-Russian narrative on this story from RT. The ease with which Russia can destroy Ukrainian airstrikes has been proven time and time again, and the same will be said once Kyiv receives its F-16 fighter jets. Based on how quickly Russia has taken out dozens of Ukrainian planes and more than a thousand of its drones, the elimination of F-16s will be a fairly straightforward military objective. There is no victorious future for Western-backed Ukraine, only prolonged defeat and misery. Ukraine Forum gives us an anti-Russian narrative. Despite Russia's talk about overwhelming Ukraine in the air, this war has come to a static pause, with both sides putting up equally impenetrable air defenses. Moscow has had just as hard a time breaking through the thousand-mile front line as Kyiv, which means the underdog Ukraine has, before receiving the proper air power it needs, already stunted the supposedly stronger Kremlin. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 35% chance that at least 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers will be killed in the Russo-Ukrainian conflict before 2024. Someone's well is going to run dry. 
they call that a, a war of attrition, you know, like it, it, at some point, war of it's, not, it's not about winning. It's about lasting longer, you know? So meanwhile, yeah. everyone on every side is suffering. So we're just going to drag it out. News from New Zealand's election, Luxon needs two other partners to govern. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by Reuters, Saltwire, RNZ, New Zealand Herald, The Evening Standard, and The Independent. According to the final results from New Zealand's October 14th election, the country's conservative national party must enter a coalition with two other parties in order to reach a majority within the country's 122-seat parliament. Full results by the Electoral Commission show the National Party to have won 48 seats, with Labour New Zealand winning 34, the Green Party 15, right-wing ACT New Zealand 11, New Zealand First 8, and Tapati Maori 6. Following the counting of special votes and an overall second count, the Electoral Commission revealed that the National Party gained 38.1% of the popular vote compared to 26.9% for Labour, 116 for the Greens, 86 for ACT, 6.1% for New Zealand First, and 3.1% for Maori. The voting count given on election night had predicted a slim majority for the National Party in coalition with the ACT Party. However, following a full count, opposition parties in reality gained three seats, with the National Party losing two compared to prior estimates. Speaking following the official results, National Party leader Christopher Luxon, who now needs the support of New Zealand First to form a government, stated that the result was much as we expected, and that there is goodwill and good faith that a coalition will be formed following negotiations with other party leaders. Outgoing Prime Minister Christopher Hipkins, leader of the Labour Party, conceded to Luxon on election night following a nine-month term in office. Hipkins had taken over from Jacinda Ardern in January after she stated that she didn't have enough in the tank for the role. Those are the facts, and the first spin is Narrative A coming from News Talk ZB. Now knowing the final vote results, the requirements for what is necessary for Luxon to form a government are set in stone. Following hints that negotiations have taken place for weeks, excitement over the initial honeymoon of a new political beginning in New Zealand is inevitable. There is much hope that an agreement will come together before the electorate grows impatient. And narrative B comes from Stuff New Zealand. Dashing hopes of Luxon forming an immediate majority with the help of ACT, the finish line of a New Zealand government continues to exist only in the distant future. Following a feisty campaign, there are genuine worries as to whether a sensible agreement can in reality take place. With Luxon non-committal on a time frame, New Zealand's politics could be destined to remain in purgatory for some time. The FBI raids the home of New York Mayor Adams' campaign fundraiser. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, New York Post, Reuters, ABC7 New York, CBS, and Fox 5 New York. FBI agents raided the home of New York City Mayor Eric Adams' chief fundraiser Thursday amid a probe into whether his 2021 mayoral campaign received illegal donations from foreign nationals and companies via a Brooklyn-based construction company, according to anonymous officials. Several agents entered the home of Brianna Suggs, seeking evidence of whether Adams' campaign conspired with the Turkish government and the company to funnel foreign money via straw donors, a third party that donates other people's money using their own name. The raid occurred while Adams was traveling to Washington, D.C. to discuss immigration with government officials, a meeting he canceled to return to New York. Adams hasn't been accused of any crimes, but several of his associates are being investigated. The authorities reportedly believe that the Turkish government may have used the KSK Construction Group to donate $14,000 to Adams' campaign. Adams said that he hasn't been contacted by any law enforcement agency 
and claimed that he abides by all campaign standards, adding he was shocked to learn about the raid, in which agents reportedly seized three iPhones, two laptops, and several records. After canceling his D.C. visit on Thursday, Adams on Friday backed out of another event. Corruption watchdog groups have scrutinized Sugg's dual positions as a campaign official while also starting her own lobbying firm, a role Suggs says didn't violate any laws. Thanks, Eric. We have a narrative A from the New York Times. It seems like Eric Adams and corruption are so intertwined that it's impossible to separate him from his long list of questionable actions and even more questionable associates. While this probe is in its infancy, it points to a larger pattern of mismanagement that speaks to his ability to properly govern New York City. The New York Post gives us narrative B. Too many are jumping to conclusions about Eric Adams. The FBI's warrant was vague, and agents have yet to even contact him about this investigation. Adams has shown that he is willing to comply with all law enforcement officials and takes any accusation very seriously. He shouldn't be considered guilty of a crime he hasn't even been accused of. Big tech will allow government vetting of AI products in the aftermath of the UK AI summit. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, The Independent, Euro News, Business Cloud, BBC News, and UK Tech. As part of the UK's first two-day Artificial Intelligence Safety Summit, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced Thursday that a number of technology companies had signed a voluntary document alongside 10 countries and the EU, allowing governments to safely test next-generation AI models. Eight companies, Amazon, Google, OpenAI, Meta, Microsoft, Inflection AI, Mistral AI, and Anthropic signed the document alongside the U.S., the U.K., Canada, Australia, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Singapore, Korea, and the EU. According to Sunak, AI models will be tested by the U.K.'s AI Safety Institute, continuation of entrepreneur Ian Hogarth's Frontier AI Task Force. The UK's AI Safety Institute, chaired by Hogarth, is also set to work with the Alan Turing Institute, the US AI Safety Institute, and the Government of Singapore. Adherence to the deal is optional, with Sunak arguing that binding requirements, while potentially necessary in the future, are not currently needed, emphasizing a current policy of making sure tech firms are not marking their own homework. The agreement followed the world's first international declaration on AI, titled the Bletchley Declaration, signed by 28 countries, including the U.S. and China, warning of the potential for serious and catastrophic consequences from the technology and agreeing to build respective risk-based policies. Scott, thanks for those facts. We'll begin our round of spins with Narrative A, coming from Politico. Despite facing skepticism prior to the event, the UK's AI summit was a success. The ability in and of itself to simply mediate conversations between the likes of the US and China should be praised, let alone the signing of shared communications and declarations. The AI safety agreement is a landmark moment, allowing governments to ensure safety concerning the latest technology within the fast-growing sector. Narrative B comes from UK Tech. The outcome of the UK's AI summit was nothing more than empty rhetoric, voluntary declarations, and self-promotion. Alongside a drastically small emphasis on the opportunity for good that AI's potential holds, the summit ignored the immediate urgency for international legislation. Despite likely plaudits, the UK missed an opportunity to really lead in the regulation of the AI sector. Round of Spins continues with Narrative C coming from City AM. The UK summit took a heavy approach to existential questions concerning doomsday AI predictions, 
rather than the practical impact that AI may have on common workplaces and labor. The UK has demonstrated its strength as a leading force in the sector. However, such discourse between political, academic, and commercial elites is currently too narrow and leans too heavily upon the abstract threat of creating godlike intelligence. And how could we not have a nerd narrative on this story? Metaculus predicts a 60% chance of a discussion in mainstream media concerning an AI arms race in March of 2025. Elon Musk's AI startup plans to launch their first product. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Mashable, CNBC, and Reuters. Elon Musk's artificial intelligence AI company, known as XAI, will release its first AI model to a, quote, select group of people on Saturday, according to a post by the billionaire on X, formerly known as Twitter. Musk argued that in some important respects, XAI's model is the best that currently exists. This comes as Musk, who recently participated in an AI-related discussion with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, said XAI is a, quote, separate company from XCorp, but will work closely with X, or Twitter, Tesla, and other companies to make progress towards our mission. Musk's AI company, whose website says its goal is to, quote, understand the true nature of the universe, reportedly includes team members who formerly worked at DeepMind, OpenAI, Google Research, Microsoft Research, Twitter, and Tesla who have worked on projects including DeepMind's AlphaCode and OpenAI's GPT-3.5 and GPT-4 chatbots. The founder of Oracle and self-proclaimed friend of Musk, Larry Ellison, said in September that XAI had inked an agreement to train its AI model on Oracle's cloud. During the UK AI summit, Musk said AI will be the, quote, the most disruptive force in history though added that it will ultimately become a force for good. He claimed it would take away the need for people to work, but warned it should have a, quote, off switch just in case things go bad. All right, Tech Explore brings us Narrative A. While Musk touts his AI endeavors as a pursuit of good, the reality is that creating a universal app for everything will inevitably bring about security and privacy concerns. Just ask the people in China whose most important daily functions, from social media and phone calls to mobile payments and investing, are under the watchful eye of the government. Musk is likely going to struggle in his attempt to garner a user base willing to put their entire lives in his hands and AI-powered applications. The Telegraph gives us Narrative B. Elon Musk speaks about an AI in both a thoughtful and benevolent manner. Through his immense understanding of technology, he wants robots to give humanity a universal high income rather than everyone living together at the bottom. Furthermore, he has said and continues to openly call for strict safety measures to ensure AI can be turned off if it goes awry. If the AI-powered, quote, everything app is going to be invented, Musk will undoubtedly lead the way. And another nerd narrative. On this story from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that AI systems will become sophisticated enough that they can build to some specification that can itself do sophisticated programming by June of 2026. Storm Kieran causes deadly flooding in Tuscany, Italy. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, Fox Weather, BBC News, Daily Mail, and CBS News. On Friday, as Storm Kieran moved through Western Europe, local officials in central Italy announced that five people had been killed in Tuscany as a result of heavy rainfall and devastating riverine flooding. Eugenio Gianni, the president of Tuscany, declared a state of emergency and said it has been a long and complex night for the entire regional civil protection system. 
Storm Kieran has been characterized by meteorologists as a bomb cyclone that swept across Europe with the lowest recorded pressure measured for a November storm at 953 millibars. The storm system arrived in Italy, packing winds of 140 kilometers per hour, or 87 miles per hour, and dumping more than 200 millimeters, that's 7.8 inches, of rain in some locations. The heavy rainfall caused the river Vicenzio to burst its banks, forcing residents to rooftops as cars were swept away. Victims of the flooding include an 85-year-old man found in his flooded home in Prado, and an 84-year-old woman was killed while trying to prevent the water from inundating her home. While search and rescue operations are ongoing, Italy's Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney has dedicated 5 million euros, that's 5.3 million American dollars, to aid residents in recovering from the disaster. Before reaching Italy, Storm Kieran moved across Spain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany, killing another seven people. The devastating storm system arrived on the heels of Storm Babbitt, which caused flooding in the region less than two weeks ago. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts. Our round of spins begins with Narrative A, coming from Euronews. Storm Kieran will be ranked among the top 40 most devastating storms to occur since 1980, and it should serve as a wake-up call to the dangers of climate change. Weather systems like tropical cyclones and broader patterns like El Nino are directly tied to sea ice and global temperatures. If we don't act soon, these weather patterns will be irreversible and the impacts endless, and Europe is very much on the front line. And Clean Energy Wire brings us Narrative B. European governments have increased the speed of their climate adaptation plans. Not only are these nations aiming to reach net zero emissions sooner, but they are also focusing on a multi-sector approach to infrastructure advancements that will incorporate resilient improvements in technology and nature-based solutions. Europe is at the cutting edge of adapting to climate threats. Narrative C comes from Financial Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of climate change, but in reality, they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change in the 21st century, as measured by its impact on GDP, will be at least 10.98%. You're Italian, right? I'm not Italian, but I, I, have, I have been to Rome. For my I, honeymoon, we went to uh, Rome, okay, the Amalfi okay. Coast. I got but you, I, I do make a pretty mean uh, 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 spaghetti and uh, tomato sauce, so uh, I've been working on it. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, November 4th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.